Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 367 of The O Show, brought to you by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness, our new sponsor over at Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an exclusive high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ himself, formulated with the perfect combination of boxing strength and cardio conditioning intervals designed to make you look good, feel good, and leave you with more than just a great sweat. The best group boxing workout in the market, again, brought to you by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. We got an excellent guest on the show today. He's been working in video production for over 20 years. He's the owner of Point in Time Studios. Mr. Kala, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. Thanks so much for, again, taking the time to come into the studio. I know we've been talking back and forth for a few weeks now to get this done, so I'm very appreciative, man. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, absolutely. And it's so nice and air-conditioned here, so, you know, get out of the heat a little bit. Oh, my God, I know. You don't (laughs) even realize it until you bring it up. (laughs) Yeah, it is nice, so, yeah, thank you. So you, you were originally from here, or did you just go to school at ASU and then... Yeah, I'm one of the few natives, so I was born, raised, and trapped here. I I lived for a little bit in in Spain. I got to do a study abroad program, but I came back, and I just, I love this state, and uh, it's been fun to, you know, watch it grow, uh, you know, as far as every industry and commercially, but also, you know, the film industry and seeing that that really blossom, so it's been exciting. You ever think about leaving, or even as a young kid, kind of exploring around? Like, do you think about going out of state for college and... I, I did. I looked at uh, maybe going to New York for film school, uh, maybe L.A., and, you know, ASU didn't have a film program at the time, and uh, I talked to my parents, and it was, you know, I decided ultimately to go to ASU, which was awesome, go Devils, and studied uh, business over there with an emphasis in entrepreneurship and Spanish, and uh, like I said, lived overseas for a little bit, came back, I got a job at General Mills, which is a great job doing sales and marketing, but just found early on I just really wasn't living my dream, wasn't my passion. Uh, it was a great job, but being in a cubicle all day just yeah. didn't do it for me. I wasn't able to be creative. So about three and a half years into that, I left and started a point in time. Oddly enough, I, I was doing small jobs, like small corporate videos, and on the side, I was doing construction. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the movie Office Space. That was me. Yeah. I left the corporate America to do construction. Lost weight. It was fun. Uh, but the dream was to start my own company. And so uh, it took me about a year to get going, get clients, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. You know, we started doing video uh, got into bigger projects, more commercials, and uh, several years into that, doing 3D animation, virtual reality, and now we do national spots and all of that. So it's been fun. How many hours a day did you work with the marketing gig? Because obviously you could have, you know, during your off time, d- done your own stuff, built kind of your your, your uh, repertoire, your arsenal, yeah. per se, with stuff, independent stuff. Did you ever do that? Yeah, I'm kind of an all-in sort of person. So yeah. um there's a really good book by Napoleon Hill. It's called Think and Grow Rich. And he talks about a story of a captain of a ship, and they're landing on the shore to go fight their enemy. And they're at number three to one. And he tells all his soldiers to, you know, burn the boats. And they say, well, burn the boats? Yeah, burn them. So they burn the boats. They go, now what? He goes, now we have to win. And I've always used that mantra in my business. It was, it was never half in, half out. And I truly believe if you've got one foot in, one foot out, you're never really fully committed so I started, you know, incorporating the business while I had that job, but I knew in, to really do it and do it well, I had to be all in. And mm-hmm. 
really, I had put all my chips on the table. I had um, my oldest son and my other, my second son had just been born. So I have two kids, I'm married, and you know, I go from making a great income to making nothing. So it was very scary, don't get me wrong. My whole family was like, are you bananas? Like, you're gonna do what? <laughs> you're leaving a corporate job to make videos? And I was like, trust me, like, this is what I'm passionate about. And I truly believe if you're passionate about something, you will find a way to make it work. And I did, it took me a few years. I survived two recessions and 20 years later, we're still here and, and uh, we're having one of the best years I've ever had, so. Yeah, that's something you do when you're my age. 21, 22, you make that career switch. So, yeah. I mean, it worked out in the end. It did. It was I was great. actually, yeah, I got married early, had kids early. So I was 24, 25 yeah. when I started point. Actually, no, I 24, I started my job and then 28 when I started point time ish. So uh, it was, yeah, definitely, um, you know, it was a little harder when you have kids, but mm -hmm. again, I, you know, I had to find a way to make it work. So, yeah. So what clicked in your mind as, you know, as a young kid, whether it be, Early on, high school, going into college, like what clicked for you when it came to film and wanting to work in that side of the uh, industry? Yeah, that's a great question. So my dad brought home one of these old cameras. Uh, some of you might remember it, but it was the one with half a VCR, and you had to, oh, you know, yeah. it, it recorded VHS. And and I just was like amazed by this, you know, camera. And so I learned, I read the instructions, I learned how to use it, and I just kind of took it over. And I started writing little short films and, you know, casting my friends and family in it. So I was kind of known in school by the, as the film guy, and everybody wanted to be in my movies. And I just loved it. And I'd always been a big, you know, film buff. But that was like at, you know, 10, 11 years old. And then fast forward, I kept doing that, you know, up and, and through college. And so I always had a passion, but I didn't really connect the dots and think, like, can I make a living doing this? Because I'd seen everybody else go get a real job, you know, and uh, I didn't think that it was possible. And so when I finally was like, you know what, I think I can make this work. And I found there was a real need for, uh, you know, a good product, a good video and great service. You know, and I was able to combine those. It, it really, you know, it took off. So, Do you remember some of those early on struggles? Just kind of, again, kind of learning some things early on, even in school, of how everything worked. Because, you know, it's one thing to look at it, like, on a screen and be like, this is awesome, this is what I want to do, whether it be behind the scenes or in front of a camera. And then it's a totally different entity, I feel like, when you actually step into that world and you think, like, oh, my God, so many, so much editing goes into this, so many different tools, so many different toys you can play with. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny in school. And like I said, I studied business. So you learn, we actually did have a business plan, right? And so you create this fake business and you work within your group. And, and it got pretty detailed. And I'm not, there was a couple times I might have cracked it open to kind of get some reference. But it's different when it's not real money, right? It's, it's, it's you know, pretend it's on paper. When it's actually your money and your butt on the line and you have to perform, uh, it's a lot different. And so, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of struggles. You know, the, the Great Recession of 08, I had overextended myself. I had built this big studio, hired a lot of people. And then of course the economy collapsed on itself and everybody in the industry was hurt. And so that was, that was really hard. I had learned a, a valuable lesson on don't overextend yourself, you know, live, you know, below your means and really watch your cash. And that was something that I, I didn't do really well early on. I just sort of was like, let's just do it. Let's just do it. And, you know, even to today, I mean, I look at op an opportunity and I say, okay, is this something that's good for the company? Um, you know, and do I want to take on any sort of, you know, debt here? So it is something that I definitely watch. Um, mm -hmm. But the other big thing would be people. You know, I tell people, if you're starting a business, surround yourself with awesome people. If you can't afford to hire an employee, so that's fine. But surround yourself with other people that are, you know, in the industry or other business people that are just as excited about business or your whatever your craft is. Because that's going to give you energy. And I've been doing this 20 years. And I'll tell you, I wake up just as excited now as I did the day I started. Which says a lot. Because... You know, it's 80% of businesses fail in the first five years. 
And of those businesses that succeed and go to 10 years, 80% of those fail. The first five years is because of lack of systems. The 10 years is because they burn out. Mm-hmm. They just lose that, that excitement. So I've surrounded myself with core people that keep me jazzed. My employees keep me excited. So that brings energy to me and keeps me motivated. So how hard is it to find those types of people that are kind of on the same wavelength as you? Because like you're right, in one point in time, there was probably kids that you grew up with, you know, making your way in the industry that were as passionate as you, and then they burnt out, you know, and then you got to, you know, find and gel with other people. So how difficult is it, you know, surrounding yourself with people who have not the exact same mindset as you, because everybody thinks differently, but has the exact same mentality of like, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going full force, full steam ahead. Yeah, no, so I think there's two parts to that. So I'm in, I'm in a, a business group where I surround myself with people that, you know, are very excited about business in general because I realized that I had spent a long time being an artist. I was very mm-hmm. obsessed with the art, and I just wanted to create the best content, the best videos that I could, but I didn't really, I called myself a business owner, but I really didn't understand business. And so I made sure to surround myself with friends that knew business in lots of industries and that were super excited about that. And then as far as my own staff, what I would, the issues that I had is I was hiring people that were great on paper but didn't match the values. And so I had to step back and go, okay, what are our company values? And when I established those values, I got really clear on those. And so I, I hire, fire, and evaluate constantly by those values. Mm-hmm. And if somebody doesn't fit those values, it's okay. You might have a better opportunity somewhere else. And that, that's, that's all right. But they have to match our values. And so I make sure to find, and those people aren't easy to find. I'm very picky who I bring into our company. But I'll tell you, we have a, a very low attrition rate. People stick with us because once they're in, man, they're just excited. And they're as excited as I am. And they bring that energy. And we bounce ideas off each other. And we're doing just the coolest stuff. So it, it is really, really exciting to be around those kind of people. But, you know, they're out there. You just have to really clear on what you're looking for. As an owner of a company, what is the most difficult situation that you had have, or most, yeah, most difficult situation that you had to go through when it came to either someone you worked with or someone that worked for you? You know, something that you could tell yeah. on the air. Yeah, yeah, no, I would definitely say again, I'm dating myself, but the 0809 uh, recession. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I had built this studio, I had this beautiful psych, and I built this whole like offices and kitchen. The idea was to rent it out, yeah. and. Um, you know, I came to the realization I had actually gone into my retirement. I had leveraged that. I took the money out of my retirement just to try to make payroll. Uh, it was tough. I had over, and I'm just, I'm very transparent. I had over uh, like $1.1 million in debt. And I had gone to um, go out to eat to go to Burger King. And I realized I didn't have enough money to buy a, a Whopper, right? I had a million dollars in debt to the bank, but I couldn't afford food. And I realized, okay, there's a problem, right? I've got to fix this problem. And, uh, and the, one of the unfortunate things, I had to lay some people off. So that was probably one of the hardest things I had to do was just let some really incredible employees who had given a lot to the company, uh, let them go. And I had to decide who to keep. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough decision because, you know, they've, you know, you're in the midst of a recession where everything's falling apart and, and one of the worst in history, some call it a depression. And you're trying to pick, you know, who's going to keep their job and who isn't. But I knew if I didn't make that decision, the whole company was going to fold. So um, that was probably one of the hardest things was letting a couple, a handful of really great people let them know they had, you know, I was let them go. But I did try to find them other jobs at other um, studios and give them references, and, and uh, a few of them were able to find jobs. So, yeah, I mean, that was that, rough. that's definitely something that I would not look forward to as an owner of a business, having yeah. those tough conversations, especially with people that you actually enjoyed working with and that you consider friends. You know? uh, yeah, I consider them family. I mean, I tell you, you spend, we spend more time with each other than we do our own family. You know, and uh, it, it is, like I said, and, and especially those, you know, that have families, it's just, it's, it's really hard, very hard conversation to have. But, it, 
you know, it's one of the things, those, those tough decisions, people say, I'm going to be a business owner. You know, they don't really, they don't realize the spectrum what that, that encompasses. Mm-hmm. And it's making those hard decisions. And that really, I believe what separates, you know, a mediocre business owner uh, with a great one is, you know, having to make those tough calls and they're not easy. What was the, uh, the first big breakthrough moment for point in time when it came to like, okay, now you're making steady revenue, like you're not to say back on your feet, but like now you're comfortable again, you're doing what you want to do, which was the dream all along. Hmm. That's a great question. You know, I would say, um, you know, we've had definitely, <laughs> you know, people talk about business and, and sometimes people do this like straight line, right? Mm-hmm. But truly, and I've worked some of the great, you know, business minds. I've gotten to, you know, work and speak with Tony Robbins, you know, Gary Vee. I've gotten to go to seminars and, and meet them personally. And, you know, they, they, they show lines like this. It's right, more like this, right? right? right so, right, you, right, right. you know, you have this dip and you're like, oh, my big break. And then, oh, and then my big break, you know. And so, you know, you've definitely had those, those roller coaster waves. But, um, you know, I would say that, you know, we've had even lately just some really awesome clients we've gotten to work with that, you know, have come to us and say, hey, I, I need, you know, I need content constantly. You know, and we're, they're looking to us to really be on the cutting edge of what's the latest and greatest. You know, we just did a project, give an example, with uh, we've been working with ASU Thunderbird for the last few years. Mm-hmm. And that's just been a great client because they're, they're on the cutting edge already. They understand, you know, virtual reality and video. And so they come to us and say, hey, and when COVID happened, they're like, hey, what can we do to still have a graduation? And, you know, amidst all this. So we had, we had created a whole, uh, the whole campus in VR for them that they were able to take, you know, to other countries and show it. But we created a virtual set, and we brought the dean in the virtual set that we created. We had robots accepting their diplomas. We had holograms of uh, President Crow, so, you know, they could basically get their speeches. Yeah. So we found a way to make this really cool virtual uh, graduation commencement ceremony for them, which was a huge success. We've done a couple of them now. Uh, but those are, those are great projects. That's a great example of an awesome client that we really enjoy working with. So talk to me a little bit more about the whole virtual reality side of it. I think we actually have a picture of you somewhere up on these screens. If Zach, you want to pull that up of you actually oh, no. in one of the, uh, you know, in the virtual reality, so to speak. But how early on did that kind of come into play? Is that more recent or like, and again, like what's it all about? Because yeah. I'm totally confused yeah. about it myself. So about uh, six, seven years ago, I'm playing um, with Oculus uh, or one of the Oculus gear headsets. And I, you know, I had the phone in there and I'm watching LeBron play and I'm courtside. And I'm looking around, and it was a 360 panoramic experience. And I said, this is the next big thing. I mean, I am there. I am at the game. And because everything that we've always done with video, it's emotional, right? I want to evoke emotion. It's, it's you know, experiential. And I want to put you in that environment. And I said, for the first time, like, I really, truly feel like I'm there. Mm-hmm. And so I said, this is the next big thing. How do we get into this? So I hired, you know, I, I brought on some more people. I invested in the, in the technology. And it's funny, a few months later, I'm building a house. And the person I'm building a house with said, imagine this flooring with these countertops and those cabinets. And they just give you like a little piece of tile. And I said, why is this not in VR? Why can't I just walk in and pick things? So I built this whole thing out. And it was a little bit ahead of its time. I flew around the country. I showed it to a lot of new home developers. And they were like, it's really cool. But it's just a little bit, you know, it was kind of selling the Porsche, right? So um, from there, I went, okay, what market could I really apply this to? And what I found was student housing was really because I'm dealing with students, we're more accepting of the tech. And so we basically gamify the experience. We put students inside these buildings before they're built, 
They can play football, cornhole, but they can also tour the building, watch games in the the Jumbotron by the pool and feel like they're there. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my first inroads into really doing a lot of VR. And I'll tell you, we did a project that was out in Spain. The the owner had basically bought it out of bankruptcy, was doing a full remodel. This is like 500 luxury villas. And he came to us and said, hey, I need a way to really market this and sell it. So we, we basically did the whole thing in VR. We flew to London. People could come in and they could actually tour these villas, stand on the roof, and see the Mediterranean Sea below them. Wow. And tour the whole place. They sold a ton of properties at this event because people didn't even have to go to Spain. They got it. They saw mm-hmm. it in VR and they were sold. So that's when I knew I was on to something. To answer your other question, I was yeah. like, oh, this, this, this is actual <laughs> ROI. <laughs> you know, because I, I just loved it. And I was like, there's got to be a market. And then I found it. And then we've done some really cool out-of-the-box stuff that uh, we just we did a project with uh, um, one of the largest semiconductor companies. We put you inside the chip, so you would shrink you down to Ant-Man size, and it's very much like a Tron experience because oh you're going God. flying through this chip. Um, we're doing police uh, sensitivity training. We put you in a domestic violence situation where you have to choose your own adventure and make the right decisions. You've got the full ambisonic sound, the heartbeat. So we're applying the storytelling we've always done with video and film and putting it into virtual reality and 360 experiences. So I'm super jazzed about it. It's fun. What was your first experience like with virtual reality? I mean, you know, going back to that LeBron thing was just, uh, was incredible. Um, and then, you know, it's just really evolved from there. I mean, that was, I think, probably the first one. But people, you know, they, we use the term VR and, and 360. So 360 is a full panoramic, right? right? So I think back to, like, even my days at Disneyland when I was a kid, I don't think this will have it, but they had the big panoramic screens around you, and you could fly over the countryside, right? And you're standing in this room, and you're looking around, and a few of you know what I'm talking about, um, mm-hmm. and you, you're truly in the scene. So, you know, and go back further, even, you know, thousands of years ago, you know, they see uh, cave drawings, um, and they're panoramic. So 360 VR has been around for a very, very long time. Even the militaries use it for, um, you know, simulations for the Air Force. But it's just now gotten to the point where the technology has become more affordable, the graphics are better, and we found an actual usage for it. Now, I think if you go a step further, you're going to see augmented reality is going to ultimately surpass virtual reality uh, as the technology gets better. Um, Apple's working on their own glasses. You're going to see more holographic displays with the glasses, and then the next evolution is going to be contacts, and then they'll have something implanted in your brainstem. So you'll just be wired in, and you'll have holographic projections. So you know, I, I keep in you know touch with all the all the tech and everything kind of happening, and I go to the trade shows, and so it's it's pretty. It's very futuristic to think what's coming, you know. So it's basically, when you have this on, it's basically what you see, like, that's your life in the moment? Yeah. Like, you see commercials of people doing it, and they're just like, oh, my God. It's yep. like, it can't be like that. Yep. Is it? Think Minority Report. So, uh, you know, you be able to swipe. You're able to, so I, I, I liken it to basically when I show my kids a payphone. I was in yeah. London. I said, look at this. Like, what is that? I'm like, that's a payphone. It'll be the equivalent of your kids seeing your cell phone. They're going to be like, Dad, what is that? It's, it's, the, it's a dinosaur box, right? They don't even use that anymore. So, and, and the first thing will be the glasses. So you want to call mom, you want to surf the web, you want to watch a movie, you're not going to need a big screen TV anymore. You'll just watch the holographic experience. Uh, you need directions. All those things will be done within that display. And then from there, they are actually working on contacts. I think we'll see those. They'll be the next evolution. And then it'll just be a, an implant. So it's... Yeah, that's, that's where we're headed. <laughs> so you probably have a ton of ideas in your mind when it comes to that stuff. Like, you have a specific dream scenario for anything that you'd want to shoot, given whether it be a client that wants to do it or something that you prefer right. to do. Right. Yeah, we are always, you know, like I said, trying to stay on the cutting edge. And for us, it's really about the content. We're not, 
you know, we're not going to try to compete with Oculus or Apple on, on you know, the hardware. They're, mm -hmm. they're just, they've got, you know, millions and millions and billions and, and they've got developers doing those things. But where we can really, you know, make our mark is in content. So that's where we talked about the police training we're doing. We're looking to roll that out, you know, even further. Um, also with the real estate experiences, we're seeing virtual and augmented reality being used in the medical field. Um, we're looking at also at uh, expanding education. So uh, again, taking the things that we've done in video and really applying that, you know, in those realms, that's where I see that that continuing to evolve. My wife is in healthcare and, and you know, she works in cardiology. And so when you're having to work on hearts, mm -hmm. you know, it's very you know, dangerous, especially if it's like a child's heart, it's you know, difficult. Oh, yeah. Well, they're seeing a 90%, an increase of 90% in success rate where doctors can actually work on the hearts in VR before they actually do the real surgery. So there's a ton of evidence already of you know, how awesome this technology can be applied. Oh. So in that regard, kind of just you know, tie a bow on this whole part. Yeah. When you go all the way back to your time at ASU, whether it was making student films, like your very first one, mm -hmm. to, to see what you've done 20 plus years later, like, do you remember the first ever film that you ever shot? Well, at first film I ever shot, I think as a kid, as I made a, I made a little Freddy Krueger like film. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I had the claw and the mask, and I was just a big fan. And uh, like the raise the hand back there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty sure that yeah, I had my sister who was like five at the time, you know, singing the Freddy Krueger song, you know, one two, Freddy's coming for you. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if I killed my mom this scene. I don't know. I definitely was blood and ketchup everywhere, you know, but uh, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, just using like little in-camera special effects that I could come up with. But that was a really good, that was a fun shoot. And then, yeah, I mean, I even look, I would be embarrassed to look at any of the stuff that I did right. in college even, because it just, you know, obviously acting wasn't there and the, you know, the, the props and the wardrobe, but it was, again, it was just about telling a story. It was about expressing, you know, ourselves and what we were feeling in the moment. And, you know, I was a big fan of Gladiator, so I made this little, like, you know, Gladiator-ist type film. I've been in martial arts for uh, over 20 years, and so I'd cast a lot of my, um, you know, martial arts uh, friends, and mm -hmm. we did a short film. I actually did win some awards. It was kind of based off BMW. You had a series of short films they created when you got the car, and they were these really cool um, uh, little films. So I kind of based one off of that. I shot down here in the in Camelback and uh, did a 3D building that exploded. I rented a, a 7 Series BMW, and... It was kind of like a, a spinoff, kind of like the movie The Saint a little bit. Had a little James Bond feel to it, but it was fun. So it's, it's been a bit since I've done that, but it was fun. It's both fun and embarrassing to kind of look back at the early ones. I, I've acted in a few. Hank knows. He was there. Just bad films that I hope nobody sees out there. They're out there, though. They're on YouTube. Yeah, I've learned to, uh, and it's funny, I, I guess some other good advice is, you know, looking at, you know, Henry Ford, he said that uh, they take him to court, you know, this whatever, 100 years ago, and they said, you know, they started drilling and asking him all these obscure questions. And he finally said to them, look, he goes, I can push a button and I can, you know, bring one of my people in here to answer any of the questions that you have. And that might seem arrogant, but at the time, you know, rewind years ago, I thought I had to be the solution guy. I thought I had to be the director and the DP and the audio and the editor, or at least I had to have a really deep knowledge of all those things. And so I was constantly trying to keep up on everything. What I realized was I have to be the visionary. Really, that's it. So I hire people that are much better at I am than three at 3D animation and 2D and being a DP and a gaffer and all those roles that go into making a film. So I look at what we're doing now; it's incredible. I mean, we're, we just shot a series of national commercials. We've got you know really big national clients, and I laugh. Think if I was trying to do all of it, it would never happen. I'm more right. of an executive producer role now, 
and I'm fine with it. I, I, I don't even direct as much as I used to, um, again, because I thought I had to do it. And we've got incredible directors now. And I really just, I bring the awesome talent together. And we create the work, and it's just been, it's just been fun to see. And, and everybody is really specialist in those fields. So, As you've seen the company grow, like in that regard, you're saying you're not doing as much directing as you used to. You know? You're right. relying on other people. You're trusting other people. When that started to come to fruition more and more, was it easy to trust these people given you know, their experience and background? Because like, it's your baby, and then you're kind of giving it to someone else, and they have their own creative assets that they want to bring to the table. Yeah, it's never easy. I, I'll tell you that you know, I kind of liken my baby. It was like, oh, good, baby's 10 years old. Or, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you know like a two, like, oh, it can kind of walk. And then 10, it's, it can, you know, it's independent. And then ah, my baby's 20. It's like, you know, it's off in college now, right? So I have to check in on a little bit, make sure it's okay. Do you need some money? Like, you yeah. know, uh, it's kind of... The is the same equivalent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when I started hiring even the directors was hard because that was kind of the last piece that was like, I have to be on set. I have to call the shots. I need to oversee the creative. And that was, that only happened probably about a year and a half ago or two years ago where we started bringing in other directors and, and I was more in a producer role and I would kind of stay on set and watch and okay, you know, give, you know, some feedback. And, but more and more, I, as I, you know, trusted these people and I saw, like, they really get it, you know, and it might be where I oversaw maybe the, the creative or the copy and uh, the creative writing and then gave it to them. But, uh, you know, what I realized was that I was limiting myself because I had told myself this story or this narrative that I had to do everything. Right. Right. And that was the big lie was I don't. Um, I can, you know, have the life, have the business I've always wanted if I could let go a little bit. And I'll tell you, that is one of the hardest things for every business owner and especially creatives and artists. Because it's our art, right? We own that. Our name is on it. And if it's bad, like that's like the worst thing anybody could say. It's like calling your baby ugly, right? So that is, that is a huge deal for us to be able to let go. And unfortunately, I, I've seen a lot of businesses, you know, over, my, over the years go under. And I was liking it to, you know, I, I go to, I was telling my wife today, I said, when I go to a restaurant and I see the owner is back there and he's cooking, he's the cashier, he's bringing the food to you, he's doing everything. I always say, and I'm like, in one to two weeks, this business is going to close. And she said, like, how do you know? I said, because he's doing everything. Because nobody can do that. Nobody can sustain that. It's too hard. But they're like, I can't trust somebody to cook that food. I can't trust somebody to run the, the register. And even though that person may mess up and there might be some challenges, you have to do that. And how you do that is be creating your values so you know what kind of person you're looking for. You have a great training program. You support them and help them. And then you can slowly step back out of those roles. And I like it. Taking those hats off. When you start a business, you're marketing, sales, accounting, finance. You're doing everything. Mm -hmm. How can I start to take some of those hats off? And, and there's some great programs out there, uh, Strategic Coach by Dan Sullivan. And, and he always says, you know, find what you're best at. What, do you, what gives you passion? What drives you? What gives you energy versus what takes it away? And those are the hats I want to take off right away. Right. So like accounting, that does not give me energy. You know? right. so. <laughs> I mean, it gets to a point where there's going to be things. We talked about burning out earlier on in the, in the show. You know, you're going to have to do all these different things. And if you don't take off some of these hats, it's all going to come crashing down eventually, which is something I think you've done, obviously, very well. And the last thing I wanted to ask you, I don't want to take too much of your time here. I don't want to take too much of your son's time, too. He's waiting. Uh, but, you know, I think it's very important to talk about, you know, I don't think there is a balance per se. But, like, if there was a balance, you know, early on while you're growing this business, maybe not so much now, maybe you have more time. I mean, obviously you're here, you know, your son's here, you brought him in here today. But back, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you're starting this out and you're going through, like, the rough patches and everything, how did you manage balancing home life with professional life uh, given, you know, ups and downs of raising a family at the same time of trying to raise a business? 
Those are great questions. So I'm an avid reader, and one book, I'd, another book I'd recommend uh, is uh, The E-Myth. And I've got to work with Michael Gerber. He's a really incredible businessman. And, and he has a story about a pie maker. And the pie maker who grew up, loves making pies. It's her mm -hmm. passion. And if you read the book, um, she starts her own pie business. And, and now she's making the pies, sweeping the floors, doing like we're talking about. Yeah. Doing everything. And, and years in it, she's like, I hate this. Like, I hate making pies now. It's, it's like the worst thing ever. And so what he teaches in the book is you have to create these processes and systems so you don't burn out. So you don't hate what your passion was. And so I'm constantly looking at that, going, how can I you know, keep doing this at a high level and still love doing it? And, and to your question about um, balance, it, there's, it's almost like a, you know, a myth, yeah. balance. It's really counterbalance. There's another good book called The One Thing, and it's um, by the gentleman that started you know, Keller Williams. Yeah. And he talks about that you, know, you have to pick one thing and to, to really focus on, that one thing that's so important that doing everything else almost doesn't matter, right? And in the book, he talks about counterbalance. So what that means is if I'm going to go put in extra hours in the business, right, I'm neglecting something, right, probably my family, not spending as much time with my kids. Right. So then I go, uh-oh, I'm not seeing my kids. Let's go on a week's vacation. Well, okay, now I just spend more time. I'm neglecting my business a little bit, right? So whatever that counterbalance is for you, there's never, there's no such thing as perfect balance. It just doesn't exist. It's a counterbalance. And so you have to understand that, hey, I'm going to put time into this. Well, guess what? Like we just got back from Huntington Beach. I shut it off and I was with my family. My wife and I were in uh, Hawaii um, uh, two months or a month and a half ago. And I told my, my team, you guys are in charge, right? <laughs> Don't have a big party. Just you're in charge. If it's an emergency, you can get a hold of me. My phone's off. I'm not checking email. Because I knew in that moment, like I need to put into my marriage in order for this marriage to prosper. I can't be checking my phone. And I've done that. And, you know, my previous marriage, I was in Napa Valley. I'm on my phone making calls. I'm in the beautiful, this beautiful countryside. Yep. You, you can't live like that. So you have to know when to turn it off and when to turn it on. And when you turn it on, be present. Because I'll tell you what, the whole thing about multitasking is a, is a lie as well. You have to be present. So when I do something, I do that one thing and I do it well, I shut it off. So if you and I are talking, you come to my office, I shut my laptop and we're gonna chat. When we're done, I'm back into what I'm doing. But this switch tasking, is a, it, it eats up time. So, so I don't know, just again, just general you know, tidbits of information, I've, knowledge I've gathered. See, what if you miss an important call, though, if you turn off your stuff? What if it's like the call of a lifetime, whether it be on like the family side or the business side, and you missed it, I'm hypothetically? Okay it. I'm okay with it. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, for instance, I'm on the beach with my son, and we're, you know, he comes, this just happened a couple days ago, and he's 15, you know, come, yeah. come here, I'm on the age now where it's almost like, oh, I don't want to hang out with you more, Dad. And, and, you know, he's like, let's go play Frisbee. My phone's in the room. So it, it could be, you know, Steven Spielberg calling me, I'm sorry, I'm playing Frisbee with my son right now in this moment. So when we're done and I'm back in work mode, like, okay, I'm available. But I've learned to make sure to give that person the time and attention. Like right now, we're interviewing for a position. If my phone's ringing, I don't know who's calling. If it's important, they'll leave a message. Because how would you feel in that moment if, if we're working together and I'm not present? Yeah. And you come to me with something important, but I'm looking at my phone. I'm looking at my Slack messages. I'm looking at my Facebook message. We are in a world now in a society where we're constantly getting pinged and dinged by all over the place. And we wonder why we're so schizophrenic, right? Because no one's present. So when I go for a walk, I've learned now. I leave my phone in my office. I go for a walk. Because guess what? I'm noticing the birds and the trees, all the things I didn't notice before because I wasn't present. So, again, to make people feel special, especially on your team and your family, you've got to shut it off, man. It doesn't matter who's calling. And if it's important, they'll leave a message. Well, that's, good. that's a good mentality to have, I think. Yeah. 
it's taken me a while to get there, but that's <laughs> I've, I've learned that through some some difficult times. But yeah, hopefully that helps. Oh, one hundred percent. I awesome. think. Uh, are you ready to get out of here? <laughs> Got your son in studio <laughs> just watching. But uh, I, again, awesome. I'm gracious. You know, I'm thankful that you were gracious enough to come in My to pleasure. studio today. I'm glad we got to uh, get finally get this done. Hopefully, yeah. we can do it again sometime. I'd love that. And I wish you the best of luck and everything you. you got going on, man. Thank you so much, and thank you, Wyatt, for coming out and hanging out with us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. All right, this was episode 367 of The O Show. Again, we are presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Thanks again to Mr. Kala for coming on the show. This was episode 367 of The O Show. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.